keep your Bibles open. Revelation will be in chapters 8 and 9 this morning. Uh, perhaps you have read ahead uh, in Revelation and you've uh, maybe this week in preparation for today read through chapters 8 and 9, the seven trumpets of God's judgment that come in they're following the seven seals of God's judgment in Revelation uh, chapter 6 and 7. You read 8 and 9 about the trumpets and you're wondering, Stephen, why in the world on Mother's Day would you preach about God's judgment? And the answer is, it was just the next text. <laughs> My philosophy of ministry is, and it's simple, the Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. So... Let's turn our hearts to God's word that he might do his work in us. In that great Greek epic poem, the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey tell kind of sister stories. But in the Iliad, we have this story of this great war between Greece and Troy, that great fortified walled city. And over the course of the battle, you'll remember there was a a period there where the Greeks were not winning. They were not doing well. They could not prevail over Troy, nor manage to uh, get through or get over its walls. And so they had to change their war strategy. So the Greeks hired, they commissioned one of their greatest master builders to build a large wooden horse, a massive wooden horse, put it on wheels, and they took some of their best warriors and stuck them inside the belly of this hollow horse, and they rolled that horse up to the doors, up to the gates of the city of Troy, and offered it as a sort of gift of concession, maybe even of surrender to the Trojans. And then the, the most of the Greek army retreated back to their ships, giving the impression that the Greeks had retreated, that they had surrendered, that the war was over. Here's this nice horse, no hard feelings, right? Let's just go on together. The Trojans, sensing victory, Bring, they wheel the horse into the middle of the city and throw a feast that night. They get drunk and they eat and they are merry and they all fall asleep in the town square. And when all the city is quiet, those elite Greek warriors come from outside of the belly of that horse, wreak havoc upon the city, breach its walls, and the Greek army rushes in and takes over. And that's the end of Troy. The illustration of the Trojan horse uh, reminds us of the the danger of receiving or bringing into our lives things that look good but are ultimately deadly. Friends, that's precisely what sin and idolatry are, a Trojan horse that look pretty on the outside, that promise all sorts of of wonderful things, of, of, of enjoyment and fulfillment and purpose in life. And we bring these sins as as beautiful, uh, gifted horses into our homes. And then when we are not expecting in the middle of the night, a demonic horde is unleashed from within them, destroying everything in its wake. We have a picture of the sneaky and deadly nature of sin for us and of God's active judgment against it in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. We turn now from the first set from the seven seals now to the seven trumpets. And today we'll look only at these two chapters, eight and nine, the first six trumpets. There's a seventh trumpet coming, but you'll have to come back next week for that. In the first six trumpet judgments, what we see is God's active wrath, his active judgment against idolatry of all forms, revealed in a way that is ultimately meant to call people to repent. 
But in the end, even his call to repentance, his judgment of sin, only hardens those who are committed to it. That's where we're going to end up at the end of Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21, as Nikki just read a moment ago. That the end result of all of God's wrath against sin in the time between Christ's uh, ascension to heaven after his resurrection from the dead and, and until his second coming, that God is warning people about the danger of sin, calling them to repent, but we will see time and again, and we have seen time and again throughout, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout history that all of God's mercy and intention to bring people to himself has only resulted in so many hardening their hearts even more against it. The main idea of our text this morning, Revelation 8 9, is this, that God judges idolatry so that we can see it for what it is. God judges idolatry, and explicitly so, and graphically so, in Revelation 8 and 9, so that we can see idolatry, so that we can see the sin of our hearts for what it really is. We must come to understand this morning, friends, that idolatry is not harmless make-believe, chasing after the things of this world to bring us contentment, fulfillment, comfort, is not harmless make-believe, it's not child's play, but it is a spiritually deadly endeavor from which we must repent and against which we must seek God's guidance and protection. So let's look at the first four trumpets. Follow along in your copy of God's Word, Revelation 8, verses 6 through 13. Now the seven angels, you'll remember at the opening of the seventh seal, seven trumpets were given to seven angels. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, or bitter, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that, their, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. These first four trumpets in Revelation 8, verses 6 through 13, reveal to us, teach us something about God's judgment against the idols of this world. It may not seem like that at first, but bear with me. The first four trumpets are God's judgment against the idols of this world, his active judgment against the the machinations of our hearts to worship things that are not God, that have been ongoing since Christ was ascended to heaven after his resurrection and until he comes again. Now, these first four trumpets, we won't deal with them all in strict detail. A lot of the details in Revelation uh, are ornamental, so we'll, we'll, we'll kind of deal with these in broad brushstroke. But these first four trumpets all have two things in common. First, and you probably notice this, they're all directed at the created world, the earth, the sea, and everything in it, streams and rivers, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything in the heavens and the earth is, is what is uh, uh, the object of God's judgment here. Each of the trumpets brings about disaster upon these parts of the created world. Second, 
All of these disasters are mitigated. They're limited in their scope. In most every case, only a third of that part of the creation mentioned is destroyed. God's judgment here is not comprehensive, but it is limited, it is mitigated, but it is intense in order to demonstrate who God is. What's interesting too, and perhaps you're hearing the echoes of this as we're reading, is that these trumpets also bear a striking similarity to other parts of Scripture, specifically the plagues that God sent upon Egypt in Exodus when Pharaoh, who had enslaved the Hebrews, refused to let them go from their slavery. Now, the trumpet judgments don't follow the progression of the plagues perfectly. There's four of these trumpets here. There's two more that are yet to come, and there's some similarity there too. There are ten plagues in Exodus But the the trumpet judgments don't have to follow the Exodus plagues perfectly in order to have the same sort of effect on our hearts as we read. Remember, that's the point of symbolism, of the deep symbolism used in the book of Revelation. It's not to give us some sort of code uh, or or, or obscure way to read the world, but uh, these, these detailed symbols are meant to speak, to communicate to our hearts. In Exodus 2, 23 and 25, We read the slavery-bound Hebrews praying to God for deliverance. And in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, after Pharaoh has refused to let God's people go, God prepares Moses and the people to witness his power in the form of these plagues, ten of them, that will afflict Egypt, so that, as the Lord says, this is why God sends plagues on Egypt, so that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. The ten plagues that follow are then directed at the created order in Egypt. Each target of the plagues throughout the Exodus plagues are tied to one or another of the gods of Egypt and their presumed territory of control over the world. As these plagues from the Lord overturn the world of the Egyptians, the Lord is overturning their assumptions about which spiritual beings really hold power. At the end of the plagues, it won't be the pantheon of Egyptian gods who are in control, but the only true God, the Lord, the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as I am who I am, it will be him who sits on the throne of the cosmos, and he will deliver his people, even from the greatest power in all the world, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The plagues of the trumpets in Revelation 8, we find, play out a strikingly similar narrative. As disaster falls upon the created world with each successive trumpet, we are meant to read the symbolism drawn from that ancient work of God in the history of the Exodus. These trumpets are the Lord's active judgment upon the idols of this world that we live in currently. The worthless gods still worshipped in the time between Christ's resurrection from the dead and his imminent return. So what are we to understand from these commonalities in the trumpets with the plagues of Exodus and with each other? We hear the echo. What's the point? Why is John drawing our attention to things that God has done in the past and connecting them to what God is doing presently? Well, the commonality with the plagues of Exodus demonstrates, I think, first of all, that humanity has not evolved beyond the emptiness of idolatry. Still, in every corner of the world, people live to appease gods and to appease spirits who they believe exercise their power through and over the created world. 
This is the problem of the Egyptians. They had a pantheon of gods that they believed worked their power through the created world. This is the problem of the Zulu tribes people that my wife and I observed in villages of rural South Africa. It's the problem that is perpetuated in entertaining forms, like Disney's newest film, Turning Red, as the primary family gives homage and pays sacrifices of food and prayer to their ancestors. Idolatry is not a new thing. It's an old thing. And friends, we have not evolved beyond it. Here's the definition. This is what idolatry is. When we say that word, this is what we mean. Idolatry is giving glory, giving worship, giving praise, or placing hope in anything other than the Lord God. That's what idolatry is. Giving glory, worship, praise, or placing our hope, or seeking our comfort in anything from anything other than the Lord God. And idolatry includes the worship of all kinds of things, the worship of other gods, The worship of images or idols. It includes the worship of creation itself. Idolatry even includes the the worship and the glorification of ourselves. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23 tells us that this is in the heart of every person. All of us uh, have done this. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for deities made of our own foolishness and our own imagination and deities made in our own image. The judgment of God against the created world and particularly against those who dwell on the earth. We heard that phrase come out of the mouth of the eagle there at the end of chapter 8. These earth dwellers, a, a phrase that's already been used in Revelation and will be used more and more. It's, it's, it's kind of code. It's a shorthand for those who live with their hope and their glory in the things of this world. That's, what, that's who those who dwell on this earth are. Not just people who live on the planet earth, but those whose, whose hope and, and, and purpose and meaning fulfillment is all found only in the things of this world and not God. The judgment of God against those who dwell on the earth in these trumpets is to declare that the Lord is the sovereign master of all things. He created everything, not a sun god or a moon god or a tree goddess or an ocean deity. And if God wills, if the creator of all things desires, he can destroy and upend his creation as judgment upon those who worship his creation rather than him. It's his. He can do what he wants with it. Now, you may think that because we live in a modern scientific society that we've, we've evolved, we've, we've moved on beyond this kind of base idolatry, this worship of other things that are not God. No one worships stone dolls anymore, not in the civilized world. Stephen, don't you know? And in some sense, friend, you'd be right. We have evolved. Not away from idolatry, but to far more technological forms of it. Now our stone dolls are glowing glass screens and flowing electrons and our children's potential professional sports careers. Our gods are the laws of physics and the American dream and our rituals are like doom scrolling and tweeting and hashtag activism and day trading and weekend travel ball clubs and dance recitals and prep schools. Most of these things are not bad in and of themselves. Many of them are meant to be good and helpful Just like trees and oceans and economies and the sun and the moon are good parts of God's creation, but in our endless creativity, we find ways to glorify these things and to look for purpose in these things, not as good gifts to be managed to the glory of God, but as things that exist to glorify us and to help us get ahead and to comfort our souls and to give us purpose. For all of our scientific advance and social media innovation and recreational inventions, we have not done away with our idolatry. And we have not diminished God's righteous wrath against worship of ourselves. We're not altogether better than the Egyptians. We just come later in history. But the Lord is still God. 
And he will get glory over those who idolize the world. The commonality among the plagues of the first four trumpets also teaches us that while mankind manages to maintain their idolatry, we've not evolved beyond it, the Lord is still merciful in his judgment. I think we're meant to read these plagues, these first four trumpets, symbolically, as God demonstrates his power over all things in ways that lead to the insecurity and to the punishment of those who depend on these parts of the created world for comfort and purpose or sustenance rather than depending upon God for these things. But at the same time, while God would be just and well within his right to destroy all of that which people idolize, in his mercy he only destroys a third over and again through these first four trumpets we see. A third of this was destroyed, a third of that was destroyed, a third of this was undone, a third of that was darkened. The point being this, that God is withholding judgment upon two-thirds. He judges a third and withholds it from two-thirds. But for what? For what purpose? For the repentance of the two-thirds. These plagues serve the dual purpose of punishing the wicked and warning those who witness it to turn. To turn from their idolatry, to turn from worshiping self and stuff and the things of this world. To see the emptiness of giving uh, control of our lives to created things and to find purpose and abundance in giving control to the Creator. But the text goes on. Follow with me in Revelation 9, verses 1 through 21. The first four trumpets show God judging the idols of this world. And John continues relating his vision to us. He says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit or the abyss. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the uh, were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Sounds familiar from Exodus plagues too, doesn't it? And they were given power like power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We learned about that seal back in chapter 7 of Revelation. God's sealing is a mark of his ownership, those who belong to him through faith in Christ. These locusts were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destruction. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million. You're welcome. I did the math for you. I heard their number. 
And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and is in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or of their thefts. And as I said before, happy Mother's Day. The first four seals demonstrate God's judgment against the idols of the world. These fifth and sixth trumpets, which compose all of chapter 9, show us the idols of this world wreaking havoc on their worshipers. The idols of this world, the things that we worship that are not God, wreaking havoc in the lives of those that worship them. Now let's recognize from the outset that the images in these two trumpets, the fifth and sixth trumpet, are striking, horrifying even. And friends, they're meant to be. Remember, the deep symbolism in Revelation is not meant so much to obscure details about future events so that the church 2,000 years after John wrote will have something to keep them busy doing, decoding all of this. No, that's not the point. The point of the deep symbolism of Revelation is to reveal to our hearts the true nature of many of the spiritual realities that they describe. The spiritual reality behind sin and idolatry is terrifying, horrifying, We should be scared of worshiping idols. The fifth trumpet heralds a star falling from the sky. The star is likely uh, Satan or some other demonic angel. There's a reference uh, here to Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 where Isaiah speaks about the fall of Satan. This angel who was created to, to, uh, uh, to serve God in his heavenly throne room but who in his hubris and his pride in his arrogance rebels against God and is cast out of heaven and he takes with him a third of the angels who also likely, uh, likewise rebelled against God. Here the fifth trumpet has this star falling to earth and it is given authority. It's given a key to a bottomless pit. Remember who holds the keys to death in Hades? It's Jesus, the risen son of man. So now he's delegating, he's giving some limited authority to Satan to hold the key to the abyss. And when he opens the abyss, there is an ungodly swarm of grotesquely described locusts that comes out. The description of these locusts is not to tell us that they're really Apache helicopters. That's not it. The description of the locusts reveals how terrible they truly are and that they have authority from God. They were allowed, the text says, allowed by whom? Well, who's sovereign over all things? God. Allowed by God to torment those who do not have the seal of God on them, the seal that we learned about in Revelation 7. So intense is the torment from these demonic locusts, uh, which are not locusts, it's just an image of, of the demonic, that they are destructive. They destroy everything in their path. When locust plagues come upon the earth, when a swarm of locusts comes through, they eat everything in their path. But these locusts don't eat grass, they eat souls. So intense is their torment upon unbelievers that those who are receiving the torment want to die but cannot. And then the sixth trumpet is blown. And four angelic beings, probably also demonic as well because they're described as being bound. 
These demonic beings are unleashed, unbound to bring war against a third of mankind. And their number is immense, 200 million. That's a vast army. They're horrific in appearance, and they bring death to a third of humanity. These are not to envision a literal army of demon warriors killing humans riding on horseback, but rather to image the death and misery that is brought on by sinful idolatry throughout the ages. This is what idolatry looks like. This is what the effects of worshiping things that are not God looks like. So what then do this demonic locust plague and this demonic army reveal to us in the context of these other four trumpets that we've already seen? Well, first... In the context of the other four trumpet judgments upon the idols of this world, these final uh, two trumpets reveal that idolatry is not benign. Idolatry is not harmless. It's not child's play. Time and again, Scripture indicates that worship of idols, worship of things, finding comfort, seeking pleasure or purpose in things that are not the Lord God is really worship of the demonic. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, he says to the church at Corinth, living in a city that was replete, just full of idol worship in temples to Greek gods, he says, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The idolater, the recalcitrant sinner may think in their mind, this is just a tree. This is just a rock. This is just a phone. And at the same time, be totally ignorant or dismissive of the real spiritual connection behind their worship. Now, trees and rocks and the moon are not spirits. But demons are more than glad to deceive human hearts into believing their worship of these idols is harmless. The fifth and sixth seals reveal that this false, perverse worship diverted from God to the things of this world, of self and stuff, is really worship that is diverted to the demonic. And demons are not benevolent beings, friends. They are like locusts. Biting and stinging the soul and the conscience, they are dressed for battle against God's image bearers, doing all that they can to deceive us from seeing sin for what it is and to keep us bound for death and destruction that our sin inevitably brings us. Second, these two seals reveal to us that God is ultimately sovereign even over demonic forces. These things are not out of His control. God allows the demonic swarm to bite and sting. And he unbinds and releases the demonic horde to wage spiritual war against those who play at idolatry. Understand this morning, God is not the author of evil. There's nothing wicked in him. He's not the author of sin. He never does what is wrong. But as God, he is absolutely in control even over the evil of this world. The evil of our hearts and and the evil influence of rebellious, angelic beings alike And in his sovereignty over all evil, God restrains it mercifully. He doesn't allow it to run rampant. He doesn't allow it to get out of his control. Though the wages of sin is death, God restrains this demonic horde from total destruction. The final result of all of God's judgment, though, against the idols of this world and against their wicked worshipers is not repentance. You would think after seeing all of this, after experiencing the the spiritual hardship and spiritual pangs of worship of idols and stuff, that the people who are worshiping these idols would stop, would turn. 
But they don't. Instead, they double down on their sin. The final verses of Revelation 9 make clear that God's mercifully restrained judgment against evil does not soften the hearts of those who are graciously given time to repent. Instead, like Pharaoh, they double down on their idolatry and rebellion and pride, seeking to soothe the spiritual pain of rejecting God with more upheaval against Him. It's like doing all this stuff, living apart from God, seeking comfort and pleasure and purpose and fulfillment. My own way has only led to spiritual pain and emptiness and fruitlessness. And I'm really mad at God about that. So what am I going to do? All the same stuff that got me in this place to begin with. That's the insanity of sin. It tells us that we can soothe our hearts from the spiritual pain that sin causes with more sinning. Friends, I have but one point of application for us today. In light of these six trumpets that we've seen, Revelation 8 and 9, one, one big take-home for you this morning, and it is this. Take seriously the danger of idolatry. Take seriously the danger of idolatry. Seeing the worship of things that, is not, that, that are not God for what they are, as we see in Revelation 8 and 9, they're empty, they're worthless, they're the object of God's judgment. Seeing the danger of sin in your own life, Repent of it. Turn from it. See it for the self-destructive path that it is and turn. Our internal impulse to reject God, to ignore Him, to follow our own passions and worship of our own ideals of good and pleasure ultimately paves the way for our death and separation from God. And the demonic forces that are behind these things are more than glad to press our feet on the accelerator toward the cliff of spiritual demise. Revelation 8 and 9 are warning signs to us. Bridge out. Dead end. Cliff ahead. Friends, heed them. Read the signs. Listen to them. Turn to God in repentance. Know this this morning. There is not one that God has ever despised or turned away who has sought his mercy. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, that Old Testament prophet speaks for the Lord saying this. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Friends, abundant pardon for sin comes not by God winking at your sin. He certainly does not wink at sin in Revelation 8 and 9. Like, ah, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Thanks for saying sorry. No, God gives abundant pardon for sin by judging our sin fully in a substitute. His own son, Jesus the Christ, who became sin for us on the cross of his death, so that by following him, submitting to him as Savior and Lord, we might become the righteousness of God. God, in putting his own son to death for sins of undeserving mankind, makes himself both just and justifier of the one who comes to him for grace. If you regularly find yourself flirting with idolatry, friend, cut it off. Even every seemingly innocent thing that we look to for hope and comfort and purpose before looking to Christ is an idol. Seek comfort in Christ, not in online shopping. Find true love in Jesus, not added friends on social media. Be abundantly filled with purpose from Jesus, not from faithless social activism. 
Embrace real life in Christ through a relationship of submission and faith in Him, not the idolatrous religiosity of faithless church attendance. If you are a Christian, having turned from sin, taking seriously the reality of idolatry, if you are trusting Jesus more each day, see the seriousness of the subtle idols in the lives of those that you love. And show them the glory of God's grace and deliverance through Christ. Christian, preach the gospel to them. Pray for their salvation. Allow the severity and the terror of the reality of sin as it is pictured in Revelation 8 and 9. Allow it, let's allow it to penetrate our hearts so that we might be moved with compassion for those who today stand in the path of God's righteous judgment. And let us proclaim hope and forgiveness and purpose, and abundant life from that same God to everyone who looks to Christ for salvation and believes. Jesus said in John 10 that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. We see Satan, that thief, loving to receive the worship of unwitting, ignorant people, uh, unleashing his own demonic attacks upon them in return, and this being a part of God's judgment on those who won't repent of sin. But the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. It's what he loves to do. Guys, Satan and the demonic are not your friends. Jesus says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. How does Jesus give life to those in abundance? He is the good shepherd there in John 10. He says, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So that all who come to him in faith, letting loose of their sin, letting loose of their idolatry, turning from pursuit of of self-gratification and seeking the mercy of God in a time when he may be found, may receive All of that forgiveness, all of that hope, all of that grace, all of that comfort, all of that joy, all of that purpose and fulfillment and meaning in life, abundance that comes only from Him. Sin is a Trojan horse. It hides itself in the promise of a gift, in the hope of fulfillment, in the suspense of pleasure. But within its bowels are a horde of terrors waiting in ambush. The idols of our hearts that promise to give us what our hearts long for most show us a path that leads us far from God and we are deceived by evil spirits who long for our destruction. So see it today for what it is. Run in the opposite direction and set yourself up to plead with those who are speeding away from God into destruction. Point them to Jesus that they may live. A cycle of Sin and deception and death has been ongoing in the millennia since Christ rose from the dead. We've seen this cycle play out over and again. People worshiping things that are created by God as though they were God. People worshiping themselves as though they were God. And we've seen the destruction it brings in lives over and again over the millennia. God has been actively judging evil through the spiritual and natural consequences of our sin. But there is yet the promise of the seventh trumpet. We got through six today. We know that John likes the number seven. There's a seventh one coming. That seventh trumpet will herald a day when all of God's judgment will be complete and only his righteous kingdom remains. The seventh trumpet heralds a wonderful day. And until then, until that trumpet sounds, there is work for his people to do. But friends, we'll turn to that news next week. Today, simply see from Revelation 8 and 9 that God judges 
sin and idolatry in graphic forms in order to show us the reality that they really are. Friend, if you're stuck in a pattern of sin, a pattern of idolatry, a pattern of worshiping things that are not God, my, my plea with you this morning is turn from it. You may think your life is fulfilled. You may be living an otherwise happy life, but I'm telling you, even at the end of it, even at the end of it, there's only death and destruction. If you hear my voice today, hear the call to turn to Jesus, who does not come to kill and steal and destroy, but who comes to give you abundant life by taking the penalty for your sin on himself and the cross and being raised from the dead to justify you, to make you to be in right standing with God. Trust him today. If you need to make a decision to follow Jesus that way today, to make him Savior, to make him Lord of your life, will you come find me right after worship today? Let's talk about that personally. Let's pray together about it. Let me show you from God's word how you can have assurance of your forgiveness of sin and hope in Christ today. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Dear Christians, brothers and sisters, you who know the danger of sin, who have recognized it and who are repenting of it, see the danger of it in the lives of others and graciously, lovingly point them to Jesus who comes to give abundant life. Show them the forgiveness and grace that there is in the risen Savior. Show them the power that he has over sin and death and the grave to give them life and that abundantly, both now and in eternity. Let this be a call to our hearts for gospel mission fulfilling the great commission of making disciples of all nations. As Jesus says in Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us, knowing that surely he is with us always, even to the end of the age, this age where God's judgment against sin is continually poured out before us. Let's pray together and ask for God's help to respond in faith to his word.